Welcome to our latest episode of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward podcast for 2022. My name's James Luckhurst and this week the focus is on post-crash response and care. And by that I include the technology that can help the emergency services find you after a collision, the role of the professionals at the scene and the help you might get in the months and years after an incident. My three guests this week will introduce themselves. Hi everyone, Matthias Reismann, Product Manager at for service solutions, and I'm looking after, together with my colleagues, after the um, emergency call, e-call solution at Bosch. My name is Declan Cassidy. I am an operational fire officer in the Irish Fire Service with over 23 years' experience. I'm also an executive member of the Rescue Organisation Ireland and the World Rescue Organisation, otherwise known as the WRO. Hello, my name is Joe Dodman, and I'm a senior associate at Horridge Cohen Cochrane Solicitors. I help seriously injured people or bereaved families of individuals involved in road traffic collisions, which um, were caused by another motorist's negligence. You are all very welcome. Um, Let's start, if we may, with with Marcel. Imagine a remote road, an icy evening, and a car loses control and crashes. Marcel, the car is equipped with the Bosch e-call. Tell us, what happens next? Usually these days, uh, vehicles are capable of actually detecting accidents, for example, by the airbag deployment unit. Um, And in that case, cars equipped with an e-call system, they would um, trigger an e-call, which is a voice call alongside a data package, a minimum set of data uh, that is being then uh, transferred over to our operations center. At our operations center, one of the emergency experts is receiving the data out of the incident, information that it happened, plus obviously the voice go out of the vehicle and uh, immediately our emergency expert is capable of um, talking to the casualty or the passenger or the driver uh, inside the vehicle, clarifying the situation, matching uh, to what he's received on the data front. And then after um, the expert has validated the emergency, um, contact um, emergency services. So relaying all of the information so that help can be dispatched quickly. Now, to the untrained person like me, that sounds like it works really well and will be extremely beneficial. But let's look at the technology, because there will be those Mm -hmm. who are interested to know actually how that works. How does the data get transferred and what service is at work in a scenario like that? It's indeed going hand in hand with what's happening in the vehicle and what we do at the the control centre. So the vehicle is capable of... um, verifying an accident uh, via airbag sensors or sensors in the the, the belt tightness, for example. Um, drivers are capable also of just simply pushing an SOS button in the ceiling of the, um, the vehicle. So when that happens, um, the um, vehicle, it's got a so-called telecommunications control unit inside with a SIM card, which means it's able to communicate, it's able to do a phone call. And uh, that's what's happening here. A voice call is being initiated, a uh, basic set of data, including, for example, the um, location of the vehicle, um, in some cases also number of passengers, and in our case also important, the language of what's just in the vehicle. So all of that is then being sent over uh, to us, to our backend systems. On that system, uh, we verify, okay, where's this vehicle? What um, uh, language does the driver speak or what is it just in the vehicle and then it's routed to a right emergency expert and that emergency expert is then doing the do, addressing um, uh, the needs of the vehicle driver, calming him down and so on and um, in the case of uh, real emergencies, not everything is a real emergency, uh, sometimes 
people just press the button for something else. But in the case of a real emergency, we then relay all of the information over to um, um, the emergency services. So in that case, it's already aggregated piece of information so the dispatch can be organized quickly. Now, what I neglected to do um, when we first started speaking um, is to congratulate you on 10 years of eCall because, of course, 2012 brought the first mm -hmm. eCall activation and it's now mandatory in, in, in new cars. So that's quite something. Let's just look at the relationship with the emergency services. How important is it for you to, to hear what they need, to understand what their requirements are to do the, the best possible post-crash response? Mm -hmm. Very important emergency services and uh, the, um, the public uh, dispatching, so the public, so we call them in the world of e-call and the world of emergency, it's public safety answering point, the PSEP, so the guys that really take emergency calls, also the 112 uh, calls in Europe and uh, uh, dispatch uh, forces out. So very important exchange, obviously, we have a dedicated um, uh, um, um, uh, a partner relationship um, uh, and partner management on that front where we engage with um, uh, uh, the PSAPs. We're also trying to get intelligence, obviously, what emergency services do and so on. So we're trying to keep a network to have this exchange uh, going. And it's, it's also part of our, um, uh, let's say, quality management to um, uh, validate, okay, what information is needed and um, what do we need to do in order to improve our own processes and as such there's also great things in europe like the um uh, organizations where we uh, participate in such as the um, uh, ena which is the european emergencies and number association which is a great forum where everyone related to 112 and, and emergency services uh, participate in let's look to the future then so so we've come a decade with several million e-call activations since the launch in 2012 Give us your view of the future and the next generation of eCall. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all about enhancing what's there. It's all about enhancing and making emergency and eCall services and eCall support more efficient. And a uh, huge piece in that is what information can we relate to um, um, uh, the emergency responders. So it's about tapping in what's becoming available from vehicle sensors, for example, uh, and, and utilizing that to give advanced information over to the forces, um, uh, information on hazardous information, for example, fire, smoke, uh, impacts, uh, and, and so on, crash severity. So it's about extending the information to make dispatch even more effective and uh, potentially even quicker. Um, and there's there's a lot of things also around technology. Obviously, you mentioned next generation eCall that's linked to next generation one one two. That all has to do with um, how telephony and, and and data flows to emergency services in future. So, this is about how that's going over the mobile network at the moment. eCall is um, um, uh, usually running over two G three G networks, as you know from your mobile phone. You've heard that. Um, so that whole um, uh, piece of technology, how that uh, service flows through the um, networks uh, is, is moving on, obviously, to LTE, 4G, 5G, and so on. And here we're really on the front also with the um, the um, uh, vehicle OEMs that we work with to get this on the road as we speak, actually, right now. Um, at the end of the day, what it means in, in, in this emergency call situation, it means we have a lot quicker connectivity when, a, when an emergency call is being taken. We have very crisp um, uh, audio quality within that e-call. So that makes makes it all very better. 
And um, lastly, of course, we talk a lot about vehicles, four-wheelers. I think um, what will also come is, of course, that um, all of this is being extended to other vehicle categories, namely motorcycles, very important um, casualties there. Uh, um, that's, that's, of course, in, in many cases a lot more severe than uh, in the four-wheeler space. So I think it's also important to extend um, the, um, the equal solution to other vehicle categories. And, and I think motorcycles is, should, should be here, the first one coming soon. It's a far cry from, I can remember a few years ago, being in a little town in northern Scandinavia and talking about exactly this topic. And, and the, the police chief there said, um, if you are going to have a collision uh, somewhere up in these parts, please give us 24 hours notice because our response will be so much better. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think that's that's when it comes down to important around uh, where eco really helps is of course exactly in these kind of situations. I think these days in in cities and so on, people are there. They 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 uh, they see emergencies. They contact one one two and so on. Of course, eco is a, um, is, is great in that space as well. But as you just said, when you imagine like. Uh, uh, somewhere remote uh, no one has seen anything you're slipping off a road uh, that's i think where it really comes to it comes to play marcel reisman from bosch thank you so much uh, let's move now and find out a little bit more about how technology has changed and adapted in post-crash response right at the sharp end to help us with this is declan cassidy from the world rescue organization um, declan that's a simple question how was post-crash how has post-crash response changed during your career in fire and rescue? What have been some of the big things that have improved? James, uh, that's quite an interesting question. Um, if I recall some of my earliest experiences, tending instance, and looking back into now, how the dynamics have changed. For example, I recall sitting in the back of a car holding the C-spine of a casualty, waiting on a medical cruise to arrive to provide medical intervention. Whereas today we can provide that initial intervention and assessment which provides better care for casualties uh, in the, the initial stages. To be honest, in the early stages it was really a case of what we we done our thing, the fire service, and the ambulance service done theirs. Thankfully things have moved on uh, an awful lot since then. and it, it, Although it was disjointed then, that's the way it was. Nowadays, um, it's the focus to have a more joined-up approach and collaboration between all the inter-agencies, the, the ambulance fire. You've also got the, the onset there over the last number of years of increased um, car design for safety uh, elements and car design, and the equipment available and training available to rescue crews has really been a benefit over the last decade in particular. So that's been a massive change since the time I've seen post-crash in the early stages to where we are today. I think to an untrained member of the public, you'll see that a crash scene will look chaotic and confused. But tell us about how you work with other agencies at the scene to ensure this really isn't the case and you don't waste vital time trying to work out who's doing what. Going back to the reflection of my earliest experience when it was more disjointed, the main change now is the coordinator and collaborative approach, which is always going to provide the best outcome. 
Even when within the individual services approaches have changed, the fire service uses a, a safe system of work when attending incidents called instant command. It's simply a hierarchy of control at scene. One person is in control, the incident commander, and each other member is assigned a task at scene. This is very much evident in what we do in the challenge concept, for example, with the World Rescue Challenge, where we have three elements of discipline, the incident command, the technical and medical. And this is what we need out in the road. So it's a more organized, strategic approach to a casually centered, safe and efficient rescue. Um, I would also say that other elements of the rescue, uh, the, the ambulance and the police, you see that interagency working a lot better now because we understand that all of us are there to do the same, same job, assist a casualty at the, the, the scene. In a nutshell, the days of we do our thing and they do ours should really be a thing of the past. We are all there for the same reason, so that's that's where I see the for for the untrained eye, there is a coordinated response for what we do. I'll put you on the spot here now, Declan. There's lots of improvements and enhancements in the kit that will be on fire appliances. Is there one piece of safety kit that's done the most to improve survival chances for people involved in a collision? I would probably hesitate to say there's one because each ind individual incident is different. Definitely the, the evolution of the rescue equipment from the manufacturers has definitely given us a greater access to, to what we need to do. I think the biggest piece of equipment or tool that we have is our training. That's probably the biggest kit that we have that we carry around with us. But as far as material objects, the rescue equipment, that has really come on leaps and bounds over the last number of years, and the range of equipment. Okay, um, give us an insight into the future then. What should we be excited about and, and what should we fear in terms of you know, how the road environment is changing, the sort of vehicles that will come onto the roads? What concerns do you have and what opportunities are there for you know, better survivability of collisions? An interesting area and even more rapidly involving than in previous years of vehicle development. Due to the race to replace internal combustion engines, for example, with renewable energy, the landscape of vehicle development has dramatically changed. And so for some approaches on how we need to deal with these incidents involving electric vehicles, we, we do need to change our game. Electric vehicle technology, for example, is not a new concept, James. Um, it's been around for over 100 years and could have possibly been preceding the uh, internal combustible engine, for example. So where we are now with the electric vehicles, the technologies are so well advanced. In just the last number of years, for example, things have really come on so far that it's hard to keep up with them changes. You also mentioned possibly the hydrogen vehicles which will probably be the future of electric vehicles. It remains to be seen. That in itself though, hydrogen is expensive to uh, produce and the network's not quite there. So the standard EV, as we would refer to it nowadays, is probably what we're going to look for for the next couple of years.
and that's where we need to change our mindset from the rescue element just to give you kind of a snapshot what I mean by that you have electric vehicles who have inched it's instant talk you don't often hear them when you arrive at a scene so once someone accidentally might hit an accelerator that vehicle could be very close to taking off and you could be in close proximity I'd always say to crews when they're attending a scene to actually observe where which way the wheels are paint the front wheels are uh, pointing so that you're not in that direction or that pathway should the vehicle take off and then carry out your normal dynamic risk there's also the smart keys uh, which you've a lot of people have smart keys now for their, their vehicles you don't put them in an ignition you just have them on your person um, the carrying of a, an Orvid wallet for example which is like just like your your normal wallet for blocking signal you stick the, the key in there and it isolates the, the, the key from activating the, the car which is definitely something worth mentioning but if you refer to what things we should possibly consider or concern ourselves about a lot of these electric vehicles while there's not a, a higher risk of them going on fire it's the ferocity or the, the intensity of the fire when they do occur and why that is important is if the vehicle is parked in an area like an underground car park or close to a house that can have a severe risk or knock-on effect if you take a standard car fire for example is three to four hundred degrees celsius well that's extreme enough in its own right an EV can go up to 1200 degrees why is that significant well if you take or understand that concrete starts to decay and lose its strength at 500 degrees that has a significant impact on a structure like an underground car park so they're the areas I suppose not to to, to try and scaremonger but this is a new development that we have to keep in touch with and I think going forward the OEMs, uh, the, the government departments and the, the, the emergency services need to coordinate their approach and keep that information flow along with the likes of the e-call system which is an absolutely excellent addition to once, once it's been activated. Okay, thank you very much indeed Declan Cassidy. We now turn to the third area of the post-crash response discussion. With us to help do that is Joe Dodman from HCC Solicitors. Joe, so we've heard about the technology, we've heard about the, the fire and rescue element. Let's just talk about your role in the aftermath of a road collision. What, what goes on for you? How do you get involved? So my role is to help an individual or a brief family following a road traffic collision with the civil claim. So when uh, another motorist has been negligent for the accident, then I'll help that individual or family bring a claim for compensation, which ultimately will help them rebuild their lives. I also help the family or individual through the, the criminal process when there's a pending prosecution against the offending motorist, or when some, sadly, when someone has died, I will help the family with the coronial process. Let's just talk about the, the parts of that post-collision journey and what's important on that journey because you know, for, for everyone involved I'm sure traumatic, stressful and of course very very sad. Yeah it is and it's it's really important that the families get the support. Predominantly that's through the rehabilitation uh, that we can arrange through the, the civil process. So the rehabilitation is 
what can include all manner of things, including physiotherapy, occupational therapy. Um, so we will arrange that through the civil claim um, by appointing the case manager, who's essentially a clinically trained person to help organize all the different aspects of that rehabilitation. So when someone's injured in a, in a road traffic collision, um, the acute treatment that they receive in hospital through the NHS is, is really, really good. Um, but sadly, when, when someone is discharged, the, the treatment sort of falls by the wayside and that's where the private rehabilitation comes in. And that's something we can help with through the, the civil claim. But these things can take so long, can't they? I mean, families need help straight away. So how do you get the help to a family if there's no financial settlement agreed? So that is one thing that's very important to a victim or, or a victim's family um, is the loss of income that they can receive by losing a, a main breadwinner. It's certainly someone's concern when they're not working or when the realisation hits them that they're not going to be able to, turn to return to work. Um, so what we can do through the claim is, is obtain an interim payment from the insurance company on the other side, and that will um, relieve the financial burden and worries that they, that individual or family will have. To what extent are you seeing changes in the sorts of injuries people sustain in road collisions? Well, we've seen as safety in cars has improved, and certainly as medical practices have got better over the years, that more people are surviving road traffic collisions when they once wouldn't have done. So we're seeing a lot more seriously and catastrophically injured victims of road traffic collisions. Um, also, as social habits have changed, we've seen a, a change where people are more uh, are cycling more and using e-scooters. And we're seeing what we call vulnerable users involved in more collisions than we, we have previously. Well, I can can I share a story with you? I was in Liverpool on Tuesday evening. I watched somebody come herring down Victoria Street on an e-scooter, decided that they would be able to mount the curb and carry on on the pavement, but they hadn't taken into account the curb height was higher than the wheel height, so they just banged into the curb and uh, as a result face planted on the, on the on the pavement. Um that resulted in multiple uh, fractures, blood everywhere. And, and a big clean-up operation that I unfortunately got myself involved with. But the gentleman involved had uh, just decided that um, having consumed eight pints in the Cavern Bar in uh, in um, Liverpool, that the best way back to the hotel was on an e-scooter. <laughs> so I, I wasn't quite sure what to do, but I thought I would just share that with you, that these things happen. So be careful, folks. Wear a helmet and, and, and don't e-scoot after you've had a drink. I hope that's wise advice from Project Edward. <laughs> Joe, thank you very much indeed. Um, let me just bring Declan and Marcel back into the conversation as, as we round off, because the, the week of action is nearly upon us. We have a week and an opportunity to, to raise the awareness of, of road safety and the fact that we are all more vulnerable than we think we are. So I would invite you all just to give me a little tip. What, what will you all do or what do you all already do, each of you? to be safer on the roads. So start with Marcel, Marcel Reisman. I think uh, for me, uh, the basic one and, and very easy one that uh, is, is important, of course, no no trunk driving. I think it's it's something that um, 
sometimes you may be tempted to and you think you're capable of, but when you come in, in a critical situation, I think that that really this is when it all goes wrong. So definitely no 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 drunk driving. Declan Cassidy from you. Yeah, James, I, I think echo what Marcella said, but further to that, just slow it down. Get there safely rather than get there or not get there at all by going too quick. So just slow it down. Declan, thank you. And finally, from Joe Dodman, please. Watch your speed and slow down because it doesn't always get you to where you want to be quicker. And if you're um, riding a cycle or an e-scooter, is, is wear a helmet. And that's all for this episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Do tell your friends and help us spread the word. We'll be back next week and joining me will be James Dewhurst from Webfleet and Richard Stansfield from AES Fleet as we consider welfare and well-being among drivers at work, as well as looking at how data can make fleets safer. So please do join us, tune in for that. But for now, it's cheerio from Are We There Yet? and from me, James Luckhurst. Goodbye.